0: Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast.
2: There had been abuse in my family, but it was mostly musical in nature. I don't want any of this lover's lament crap. I want something peppy, something happy, something up I want something snappy.
3: Three decades ago, hip-hop was an exciting street art. Today, it's the music industry's Cash King. I'm Greg Codd of the Chicago Tribune. And I'm Jim DeRogatis of Vocalo.org.
4: We talk about the history of the hip-hop business with writer Dan Charnis. And later on, we'll review the new records by Electric Wizard and Corinne Bailey Ray. Stay tuned on Sound Opinions.
3: From WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX, you're listening to Sound Opinions. And now it's time to welcome our newest affiliate. Yes, Greg, we're
4: incredibly excited to be welcoming Connecticut Public Radio, WNPR, in that fine state, to the Sound Opinions family. Whenever we get to add a station, we like to play a little bit of music from that part of the world to say welcome and to illustrate something about that place. To me, having grown up in New Jersey, gigging all over New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts, and often in Connecticut as a young punk rocker, what a beautiful part of the world, and I think you can't choose any music that better represents the place than that of Karen and Richard Carpenter. The brother and sister were raised on Hall Street in New Haven, considered by a few to be, you know, white bread, square, the epitome of easy listening music in the 70s. No, 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 no. People have been reevaluating them for the last two decades, starting in the alternative era when bands like Sonic Youth championed them and said this was incredibly complicated and sophisticated pop music with a enduring and very very deep emotional resonance that wonderful 94 if i were a carpenter album produced a song by shonen knife the japanese noise pop band a cover of top of the world that has subsequently turned up as the theme song to a japanese tv show as a big hit on the Shrek soundtrack. Talk about going a long way from that backyard where Karen and Richard Carpenter grew up in New Haven to worldwide popularity. Here are the Carpenters as envisioned by Shonen Knife to Welcome Connecticut on Sound Opinions. (laughs)
3: That is Shonen Knife covering the Carpenter's Top of the World on sound opinions. Welcome to our newest listeners on Connecticut Public Radio.
2: You can try and read my lyrics off of this paper before I lay them. But you won't take this thing out these words before I say them. 'em. Cause ain't no way I'm gonna let you stop me from causing man when I say I'm gonna do something, I do it. I don't give a damn what you think. I'm for me, so f- the world feeding it beans is gassed up. If it, things are stopping me, I'm gonna be what I set out to be. Without a doubt, I'm tired to bleeding. All those who look down on me, I'm tearing down your balcony. No-
3: that is Eminem with a track from his latest album, Recovery, the biggest-selling album of 2010. The Nielsen Soundscan numbers on the year in music sales are just now out. I, I know you live every year until these numbers come out. Well, I do. You know, In a lot of ways, they're, they're a predictor of not only what is about to happen, but they give us a sort of a, a sense of who's going to be the big winner at the Grammy Awards this year, and it's interesting because I think Eminem as a result of his big sales numbers is finally going to get that album of the year that he should have won probably a decade ago back when he was good and now that he's somewhat less potent as an artist you know the grammys are going to lavish him with awards in a few weeks but eminem does indeed come through with the biggest sales numbers of the year 3.4 million for the aptly named recovery taylor swift once again for the second time in three years is the biggest selling artist for 2010 those are combined sales for previous albums and singles etc 4.4 4 million to me jim the key story here is not only that album sales are once again down they're down 13 percent, but music purchases are again over 1.5 billion that is significant, because I, I think what we're seeing now is a twofold story on the part of the music industry. Obviously, CDs and albums are trending downward, but more people than ever in the history of recorded music are listening to more music than ever. The fact that they are purchasing 1.5 billion pieces of music every year, that's combined albums and singles, downloads... Physical sales, etc. That's huge. And then you factor in the number of people that are sharing music files out there in the net without paying for them at all. You've got an incredible audience for music. So people are talking about the death of the music industry. No, maybe a segment of the industry is dying, but in terms of the health of music itself, people want this stuff. The story of the next ten years is how is the music industry going to figure out how to get them to pay for it? Biggest genres, even though most genres spun downward. Rap was still healthy this year, 3% gain in sales. Country music had a very soft decline, so it, again, was strong. Once again, hip-hop and country, the two strongest genres in music. You're going to like this, Jim. Vinyl album sales, again, huge this year. Relatively speaking. It is the single biggest upward trend in the music industry, although it still represents a very small percentage of the market. We had 2.8 million vinyl albums purchased in 2010, more than in any other year in the history of Nielsen SoundScan, which began in the early 90s, obviously the start of the CD era. But vinyl picking up big time, and the bulk of those sales, more than 70%, were at those indie record stores. So I think we're seeing a renaissance not only in vinyl album sales, but in the ubiquity and the strength of, of those indie mom-and-pops that have kept the music industry thriving for decades. The chain remains, the gang is intact. Uh-huh. The name is mine, I'll take blame for that. The pressure's on, but guess who ain't gonna crack? <laughs> Pardon me, I had to laugh at that. How could you walk up when you're the rock at your balls? I had to get off the boat so I could walk on water. This ain't no tall order, this is nothing to me. Difficult takes a day, impossible takes a week. I do this in my sleep. i soak You're listening to Sound Opinions, and that, of course, is Jay-Z, a man who no longer is just a hip-hop MC, but a multi-dimensional music mogul. The business of hip-hop is what we're going to focus on today with our guest Dan Charnas, author of the book The Big Payback. And in his book, Dan takes a look at how street culture evolved into a financial powerhouse. We just talked about how in 2010, in a down year for the music industry in general, hip-hop continues to sell well. Well, the foundation for that success was laid by people like Sugar Hill Records founder Cynthia Robinson, Def Jam co-founders Russell Simmons and Rick Rubin, and Charnas looks at them all in his book. Dan, welcome to Sound Opinions.
5: Thank you so much for having me.
3: Absolutely. So we've got Jay-Z talking about, I'm not a businessman, I'm a business man. And hip-hop over the last 30 years has evolved into a multi-billion dollar business. Really remarkable story you tell in this book about how it came from the streets where, where there was no money, but there was an incredible amount of cultural cachet, there was a, a buzz around this music, and it did turn into a business from those very early days. I think the key is finding a way to get this street music onto records. And as a result of that, the business grew from there.
5: That's correct. The main thing that I wanted to accomplish by writing this book is to show that what happened wasn't an accident. I think that there are a lot of hip hop fans today who don't even remember a time when uh, you know, Jay-Z and uh, Sean Combs were, weren't staring down at them from billboards on high and weren't on the radio and tv and movie soundtracks but just twenty years ago that wasn't the case hip-hop was seen as a fringe music and a fringe culture and uh, radio didn't play hip-hop and even major labels hadn't quite invested in the idea that hip-hop was something that was permanent so it wasn't an accident it took the work of a few key visionary people and uh, so those those are the stories i really wanted to tell uh, in this book
4: well, and you do. I mean, starting with the first time somebody made ten or fifteen bucks being a rapping DJ in in nineteen seventies New York, uh, all the way up to you know everybody now having their own clothing companies for goodness sake, on top of record companies, on top of uh, any number of other business uh, endeavors. That's right, a forty year journey.
3: So it starts, I think, with the, with this whole idea of getting this stuff on record. Uh, people like Sylvia Robinson come along and say, "Hey, let's let's make this transition." And I think you bring up an interesting point, because inner city culture, it was it was sort of morphing from the disco era, where disco was looked upon suddenly as this pariah, and hip-hop had some connotations with that culture for a while, and, and there had to be sort of a separation point. But initially, those two areas of music were sort of connected, and I think Sylvia Robinson recognized the potential there. It's such a good point. I think,
5: first of all, in a lot of hip-hop books, that history gets forgotten, that this music really didn't only start with Cool Herc in the Bronx. It started with the rapping DJs of the disco scene in Harlem and Brooklyn and, and other places in New York, where these guys were basically trying to imitate folks like Frankie Crocker, a legendary air personality, rhyming over the intros of records on the radio, and that gradually that morphed into an entertainment. You know, Sylvia Robinson, who who was basically the first female record producer, I think, in America, and the person who really took the chance on making the first successful rap record, that she really s- saw something in this culture. And because she was sort of first to the game and because Sugar Hill Gang was not composed of rappers from the Bronx who were seen as part of the culture, she's kind of reviled uh, in history. And so in some ways this is a contrarian book to show mm-hmm. that Sylvia Robinson is kind of a hero.
3: I think it's fascinating that the, the first huge breakthrough record, Rapper's Delight, was basically that that idea that you just talked about, the idea of rapping over the top of of what was essentially a disco song, you know, Sheik's Good Times.
4: I said a hip, the hip the hip hip you don't stop.
3: in some ways, it, there was some blatant thievery going around. <laughs> it took a right. certain amount of hutzpah to say, okay, we're just going to take this hit record and we're going to put some rapping over the top. And the remake actually outsold the ori- ended up outselling the original Chic record.
5: Isn't that amazing?
3: Pretty, pretty amazing. And it was completely on an independent level. We're not talking about major label here. We're talking about something out of the streets of New York. I remember that record showing up in Chicago record stores. Within weeks of it being talked about in places like The Village Voice, and just being amazed <laughs> that they were able to get away with this. It almost had this outlaw vibe from the start. How, how were they able to get away with it? In that
5: particular case, they weren't for very long because as soon as the record hit the charts, Niall Rogers and Bernard Edwards of Chic, the, the gentleman who wrote the original song that it was based on, Good Times. They sued. Uh, mm-hmm. And and if you look on any of the record labels thereafter, and to this day, whenever Rapper's Delight appears uh, somewhere, it is credited fully to Nile Rodgers and uh, Bernard Edwards. Mm-hmm. And listen, I was part of the hip hop industry in the early 90s when a lot of sampling was going on. And the fact of the matter is, is that all of this stuff was under the radar. And so that was a way that, that we could kind of get away with making music like that. But the, the other I think the other part of it is that this was a new way of making music that wasn't really comprehended by other musicians and certainly had no sort of place in understanding within the, the a legal framework, meaning how do you create music out of other pieces of music, mm-hmm. uh, creating a sonic pastiche, if you will, from five different records to create something wholly new and that's something that not a lot of people understood, but was very, very exciting. And I do think you're right that the outlaw element was was very much a part of that excitement.
6: Face. Right.
4: Right. 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 Vision right. dreams of passion. And all the while I think of you.
6: Right.
4: A very strange reaction. Oh, The more I see, the more I do. Baby. Dan, we want to get into some of the other moguls. Before we talk about a few of those, though, I want to know what Sylvia Robinson took from the traditional major label model, or for that matter, the next guy we'll ask you about, Russell Simmons, and, and what hmm. they did differently.
5: I don't, I don't know if Sylvia took much from the major label model. I think Sylvia and Joe Robinson, her, her husband, they were scrappy entrepreneurs. And when they founded Sugar Hill, they just emerged from a lawsuit with a major label polygram in which they almost lost their prized possession, which was the chess checkers cadet catalog. So you know they were going it alone, and they got their money from Morris Levy of uh, Roulette Records fame,
4: an infamous name, uh, one of the considered one of the biggest gangsters in the history of the music industry.
5: Indeed, I think a friend of the the Genovese, uh, yeah, there, there you <laughs> go. And what they did was they set up this independent label in New Jersey, crossed the river from New York, and basically had a lock on the rap business, for about five years. And every demo tape that any aspiring rapper had was sent to the offices of Sugar Hill in Englewood, New Jersey. And and the name Sugar Hill, of course, had connotations of home back in Harlem because Mm -hmm. Sugar Hill was sort of the upscale neighborhood in Harlem at the time. I actually think that that Sylvia and Joe were, were pretty much scrappy entrepreneurs who had a lock on the business, and then they kind of reverted to their old scrappy independent ways of being a bit chintzy with uh, the royalty payments and alienating the, the stable of artists that they had and being somewhat arrogant about their own position. And I think they frittered away their advantage and left it to some smaller record labels who were sort of these dying disco labels mm-hmm. like Profile and and Tommy Boy and you know businesses that had been conceived as uh, we're going to make disco records. And what ended up happening is rap fell into their lap and saved them
3: coming up on sound opinions from wbez chicago and prx more about the big business of hip-hop with our guest dan charnas Later on in the show, Jim and I are going to review new albums by Electric Wizard and singer-songwriter Corinne Bailey-Way. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott, my co-host is Jim DeRogatis, and our guest this week is Dan Charnas. He's the author of the book, The Big Payback, The History of the Business of Hip Hop. We've been talking to Dan about hip hop's transformation from an underground b-boy scene to one of the most financially lucrative genres in music today. Dan, let's talk about one of the biggest figures in the growth of hip hop. I'm talking about Russell Simmons. You know, Simmons started out as a street drug dealer, right? Indeed. Tell us about how he started in hip hop.
5: Russell is a great archetype and one of the few characters who spans the entire length of the book. From The book is divided into eight chapters or albums over the course of 40 years. And we meet him in the first album and we see him all the way to the end. And in the beginning, he's this party promoter. He gets turned on to the the disco rhyming scene by a friend of his from City College in Harlem. He starts to promote parties. He does flyers. He meets a guy from Billboard named Rocky Ford who's interested in this stuff. He learns from Rocky. He convinces uh, Rocky to do a record with a guy that he manages called Curtis Blow. Curtis Blow becomes the first rapper signed to a major label
6: do you give me all that jive About things you wrote before I was alive Cause this ain't 1823 Ain't even 1970 Now I'm the guy named Curtis Blow And Christmas is one thing I know So every year, just about this time I celebrate it with a rhyme
5: Russell then is able to turn that success into success for his little brother Joe who mm-hmm. becomes Run of Run DMC Run DMC becomes, as you know, basically the first hip-hop superstars and the first real crossover act into the world of, of rock and roll. Def Jam comes after that, his partnership with Rick Rubin, and Russell is able, over fits and starts, to transform that little company uh, that he founded with Rick in 1984-85 to a, a company that was valued at over $300 million when it finally sold in uh, 1999,
3: not, not bad for a street dealer. We're talking with uh, Dan Charnas, the author of *The Big Payback: The History of the Business of Hip Hop*. You know, I want to get back to Simmons too because I don't think his role can be overestimated in in the way he sort of created a blueprint. For what we now know as hip-hop, you know, there was this, this amazing sort of transformation where it was coming out of this disco period, and it was, it was dance music, and we had these dance labels kind of morphing into hip-hop labels. Simmons was the guy that said, you know what, I want, I want this hardness. I want, I, want, I want to get away from disco. I want, I want everything to sound like a drum, and I want this heavy beat, and I want less melody, more percussion." So he really sort of laid it out, and I think that's where Run DMC really set the mold for what future hip-hop was going to sound like, in, in separating themselves from those earlier acts like Curtis Blow, like Afrika Bambaataa, and creating a template for what hip-hop became. That's such a good point. I mean, that is
5: really like a defining turning point in the history of hip-hop, when Russell finally said, this music should not sound like disco, it should sound like itself. And he makes this incredible record, It's Like That, by Run DMC, along with another record called Sucker MCs that embodied that ethos. And that record inspires Rick Rubin, this college student at NYU, to make his own record called It's Yours, which was rapped by uh, T. Rock.
6: Commentating, illustrating, description-giving, adjective expert, analyzer, some other musical myth-seeking people.
5: And that record inspired Russell, and the two of them finally met, and that's how they became partners in this label, Def Jam, which embodied that ethos. And basically, I mean, if Def Jam said one thing to the world, it was that this music is viable art, that we have something to say not only in short form, but in long form. And it was Def Jam. That really, and I, when I say Def Jam, I also kind of mean Rush Artist Management, which was the Russell's management side that managed Run DMC. It's because they're all kind of family. Mm-hmm. It was it was these two companies that really created the idea that hip hop was worthy art and worthy of long form art like the the album. And it, the first triple platinum and quadruple platinum rap albums came out of this factory.
4: Dan, what did Russell get? From Rick Rubin and what did Rubin get from Russell Simmons?
5: <laughs> well, I have to disclose that I for about seven years I worked for Rick Rubin at his second company, Deaf American Recordings, which became American. And so I and I knew Russell from the days that I worked at Profile Records and I feel very strongly about this. I, I feel that Rick was a completely creative individual and his home was in the recording studio. And uh, he was a visionary in that sense. Uh, But Russell had the hustle. Mm -hmm. Russell was the guy that was going to get out there and talk and talk and talk until you picked up the phone, until you answered, until you said yes. And that's the guy (laughs) who completed Rick Rubin. And as you know, the two of them divorced in 1988. And immediately you saw the results of of what each of them were missing. I know that that Def Jam, and we, we cover this in the book, that after Rubin's departure, Def Jam went into a deep funk and eventually ended up something like $17 million in the hole to its corporate parent, Sony Music. A lot of that was because there was no creative core to the company anymore, uh, mm. and that had to be rebuilt, and it was rebuilt. And then meanwhile, Rick, over on the West Coast, after a few initial hits with uh, The Black Crows and Sir Mix-a-Lot, from, from sort of working with him um, promotion is not his forte he wants people to come to him and he wants people to see the the beautiful art that's he, that he has created and he was never a fighter like Russell and I, I, I guess maybe to this day he, he doesn't fight that fight so they did complete each other in many ways and I think in later years both of them i think confided to me and to others that that maybe maybe they should have done things differently maybe they should have stayed together i know they had their doubts and i and i know that they have an appreciation for each other today that they didn't have when they were young men
4: it would have been interesting to see what would have come out of it if they did stay together would we have had a major label bigger than any that had come before We're talking to Dan Charnas, author of The Big Payback, The History of the Business of Hip Hop. Dan, let's go to another set of personalities. Let's head out to the West Coast (laughs) and NWA and that explosion around them. I guess that's really the next big development after the Def Jam guys. It is,
5: and in my book, it doesn't center so much around NWA, although they're sort of a big part of this story. The the central fact that I'm trying to tell about Los Angeles and West Coast hip-hop is that, unlike the East Coast, where you had these small independent record companies sort of carving out a niche for themselves in the record business and some of them getting major label distribution like Def Jam or Colt Chillin', on the West Coast, nearly every single West Coast hip-hop artist that you can think of from that day came through the doors of just one company, and it wasn't even a record company. It was a pressing plant on Santa Monica Boulevard called McCola Records run by a guy named Don McMillan, who got his start in the 1950s and 1960s at a, another custom pressing plant and decided to make one of his own. And one day, a well-known DJ from the mobile DJ, uh, mobile hip-hop DJ scene in L.A., which is w- really where a lot of that talent came from, uh, Uncle Jam's army and things like that. Egyptian lover was this guy's uh, rapping name, Greg Broussard, and he came in with a record that he wanted pressed up. And he kept coming in for more and more. And so Don McMillan made Greg Broussard, Egyptian Lover, an offer. He said, "I will distribute this uh, free of charge. I'll press it free of charge, and I'll distribute it free of charge across the country. If you know, I make money, you make money."
6: the population I can deal with that situation i don't care about the petition and i've a sexy senior snatch just stop me it's so fast it's so sweet it's not another beach
5: and the record blew up across the south and especially in florida and McCullough's next record by a California group called Two Live Crew did so well in Miami that Two Live Crew moved to Miami and started a rap scene there in Miami. Mm. And all of these West Coast artists, whether it's Eazy-E, NWA, Digital Underground, Too Short, Ice-T, Ice Cube, uh, some guy named MC Hammer, all of them started... Uh, had their first records pressed up by McCullough. Hmm. And the reason McCullough lost all these artists is that Don McMillan wasn't really thinking like a record executive. And he didn't tie folks down to artist contracts. And he sold his assets off. And so if you count all of the sales... From the folks who came through McCullough, N.W.A. eventually went to Priority Records, right? It adds up to, I think, over a billion oh dollars in sales. And <laughs> Extraordinary, that's what, yeah. And start, that's what he
3: lost. <laughs> you're, you're starting to see this intersection of this underground art form, primarily nurtured by these indie labels in the 80s, start to come into the uh, clutches of the majors mm-hmm. in, in the 90s. And it was a very let's just say it was an incompatible relationship. The marriage was not destined to work. When you're talking about explicit subject matter by people like Ice-T and his offshoot group Body Count, the Ghetto Boys, this was shocking stuff for these major labels to say, oh, wait a minute, <laughs> how can we put this out with our uh, name on it because the content is just, it was never meant to be on a major label.
5: That's right. And one of the things, we we talk about two two sort of key events as far as hip-hop, hip-hop's troubled relationship with the mainstream music business. Um, the first of them is uh, the ascendance of MC Hammer and uh, and Vanilla Ice, which the success of those two sort of hip-hop records threatened the existence of the rest of the industry, threatened to sort of drown out all of the creativity that was happening around them as, as radio and video began to embrace them but i think that the major labels quickly found that that wasn't a sustainable model mm-hmm. and that the major labels started to be a little smarter hiring the right people who had been schooled in that independent label system you know think of the independent labels as sort of guerrilla warriors carving paths through the wilderness. And the the guerrillas knew the maps to the pathways and the major label folks were were clueless as to how to make it through that backwater. And the employees of those companies, as they were hired by major labels, began to school the major labels on how to sign and market hip hop. But the next crisis that you refer to is the crisis that enfolds Time Warner in 1992, starting with the cop killer controversy by Ice T's heavy metal group body Count.
6: Godzilla, me. Godzilla, only Godzilla, I know your family's Godzilla, but tonight we get even.
5: ironically this heavy metal song by this heavy metal group becomes a referendum on rap. Mm -hmm. And uh, it has uh, enormous consequences that finally climax in the divorce between uh, Interscope Records and Time Warner in 1995. Um, And what the majors eventually find after this whole sort of horrible passage for them is that you really can't keep this music down and that there will always be a home for it and i think that the tenor of uh society changed a little bit too to accept some of this stuff that was formerly seen as hardcore but it was a definitely a, a, a troubled passage especially for the time warner companies in the mid 90s
3: why would a label like warner brothers approach a relationship with an artist like Ice tea w- w- in the first place i mean they had to have some knowledge of the stuff that he was putting out on his own it was pretty hardcore even then. I mean, there was no question about what this guy was about and what he was rapping about. The same for the Ghetto Boys in their relationship with Geffen or DJ Quick in their relationship with Elektra. Right? Why do they? Was it strictly greed? Like, oh, hey, we can make a lot of money off these guys, and then they go, and then they looked at the content and they go, oh, wait a minute.
5: No, I don't think it was greed at all. I I mean, I, I mean maybe in the cases of certain. Artists, but I think by and large, um, listen. There were a lot of uh, folks who who called themselves gangster rappers and had violent lyrics, and their records ended up doing nothing. Mm-hmm. I mean, good art really has to rise to the top most of the time, I think. And in the case of Ice T and Warner Brothers, I know that Seymour Stein thought that Ice T sounded like Bob Dylan. Mm-hmm. So. That was his, you know, his connection viscerally to Ice T. And if you knew the guys who ran Warner Brothers in the in the early nineteen nineties, these were people who really believed that the artist should have a voice, and they struggled mightily to defend Ice T's right to say what he wanted to say. And I think, you know, it could have been a very well money losing situation for for the whole company because Time Warner stood to lose its uh, its cable franchises. As um, police around the country were lobbying, you know, local city councils to drop those rights, you know, Gerald Levin, he was the CEO of Time Warner at the time, and he he defended Ice-T until Ice-T himself decided that it wasn't worth you know putting folks at Warner Brothers at risk uh, you know for the death threats they were getting and the packages they were receiving at,
4: at Warner Burbank.
5: Mm-hmm. Surely um, I
4: can't be the only one Dan to every time I see his face on TV now get the hugest <laughs> kick that Ice T now plays a police officer.
5: <laughs> well that's the whole irony of the whole thing. I mean there's a passage at the end of the book where you know it's at the very end of the book where we're at a KRS-One concert in Prospect Park in Brooklyn in 2007 and of course, this would have been impossible twenty years earlier because fights would have broken out and it wasn't gentrified. And you know now f- families are there with their kids. And uh, K- uh,
4: KRS-One uh, is himself a legacy act.
5: That's right. That's right. And so at this at, at this uh, place, uh, one of the characters of the book, James Bernard, is sort of going through this litany of, of realizations of where hip hop has come and where it has gone. You know, Rick Rubin, the former. Dorm room uh, guy who who puts together Def Jam is now the uh, co CEO mm-hmm. of Columbia Records, the, the label that basically he fought against to to get a lot of these records happening. You know, twenty thirty years earlier, uh, Ice T is playing a cop on TV. Queen Latifah is a, an, an actress. Will Smith makes twenty million dollars a picture, mm-hmm. and on and on and on. How our culture has changed, but but more importantly, how hip hop played an active role. In changing our culture.
4: We have been talking to Dan Charnas, author of the book The Big Payback: The History of the Business of Hip Hop. Dan, thanks so much for being our guest on Sound Opinions. Thank you, sir. To comment on our conversation about the hip-hop industry or anything in the rock world, call 888-859-1800 and we'll put it on the air. Next up, Greg and I review two new records by Electric Wizard and Corinne Bailey Ray. That's all in a minute on sound opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. In the
6: land of the lost, you start to shiver.
4: Then you scream, my friend, you wake up
6: monthly because you're dreaming again. But next time I'm on the scene, you and I try to distance, keep your mouth a sock of because I'm business. tricked to business. The mic is this is the rap season, where the East starts pleasing Girls around the world, no need to be skeezing. When I roll, I show cool, always packing two just in case. My brother acts a fool, I got the energy to put the girls in the frenzy. Put the shock when I rock, give enough, I'm not stingy. Make sure I don't bore when I'm on the dance floor. Get busy, boy. Like you never saw before. One flow, good to go. After the show, I'll put your whole boy. You sniff blow. Hell no, I have my whole life, and they me, no time I be sniffing. My parents find out, then they start riffing. So I stay A-OK, cause I'm the E, the R-I-C-K. Yeah. she look me in my face, then the eyes get weak. Pulse rate descends, heart rate increases. Like beam me up, Scotty, I control your body. I'm as deadly as AIDS. when it's time to rock a party. and all the respect, when I say my check, let a sucker slide once, then I break his neck. So when I say jump...
4: Welcome back to Sound Opinions, I'm Jim DeRogatis, my co-host is Greg Cott, and those are the dulcet tones of Electric Wizard from Dorset, England, with a song called Venus in Furs, which, Greg, is not the Venus in Furs by The Velvet Underground, it is unique to this stoner doom band from the UK. I know that these guys have been a favorite of yours, they've been high on my list too since their origin in the early 90s. They are the self-proclaimed heaviest band in the universe. I think that's sort of tongue-in-cheek, the same way we say we're the world's only rock and roll talk show. But they are considered one of the founding bands of the stoner rock doom movement. They were on that hugely influential label out of the UK, Rise Above, early on, debuted with a split single with another band that's been a favorite of mine in that genre, a group that would become Orange Goblin. And now here they are seven albums down the road. lot of lineup changes in recent years in particular with the main man continuing to be vocalist guitarist justin oborn otherwise known as Juss. in fact he's the only one left from the original lineup greg they took a turn a couple of years ago with their last album away from the sludgy rhythms that have so characterized the stoner or doom genre towards something a little more hard rock a little more upbeat where are they going on this new album called, cheerfully enough, Black Masses? We'll answer that question in a moment after we play Black Mass by Electric Wizard from the album Black Masses on Sound Opinions.
3: Black Mass from the new Electric Wizard album. Black Mass is their uh, seventh studio album since the early '90s. Jim, you mentioned the lineup changes. You mentioned the change in the sound of this band. At the same time, there's still that heaviness there, that distortion. I listen to this record, and, you know. And if you're unfamiliar with the genre or this band, you're gonna think there's something wrong with your record player <laughs> or your CD player or your computer hard drive. It's melting down. It's there's just like. Big toxic cloud enveloping everything on this record. Not for nothing is this band proclaimed as stoner. They titled their classic 2000 album Dope Throne for a reason. It's right there Uh, in the name. Yes, exactly. Exactly. They've speeded up the rhythms slightly on this record. There's no doubt they're not quite in that tar pit of sludge they were in about a decade ago. I really, really loved the original trio here. I mean, that sound, that heaviness. Yes, they were indeed, in a lot of ways, the heaviest album in the universe at that time. It seemed, or at least it felt like it. They're a little bit more mainstreamy on this record. They sound a bit more like other bands in this genre. The distinctiveness has been lost, just a touch. But at the same time, there's still Electric Wizard in in the best of all possible ways on the best tracks. Uh, the first three tracks in this album are classic Electric Wizard. It's not a bite album all the way for me, but I'm going to give it a burn Yeah, I would agree, Greg. My favorite track
4: actually is the closing instrumental. Oh, yeah. uh, and I don't know if it's because <laughs> of the title or, or the music. I, I like them both. Crypt of Drugula. gotta love that you you gotta love that (laughs) but but still if you're only gonna buy one album by electric wizard i would say buy dope throne you need to have one and maybe only one because there isn't that much variety to the sound Mm -hmm. so yeah i can't say it's a trash it It gives me great pleasure but i'm gonna go back to dope throne the next time i want my wizard fix so yeah this is a burn it record
6: (laughs) I
1: want to love you. I want to love and treat you right. I want
3: Corinne Bailey-Rae with a cover of Bob Marley's Is This Love from her latest EP, The Love EP. Corinne Bailey-Rae, part of that UK neo-soul movement that began in the middle part of the last decade, people like Amy Winehouse, Adele Duffy, she's kind of more on the singer-songwriter part of that genre, a little bit more mellow, a little bit more low-key, a little bit more melancholy. Self-titled debut in 2006, huge beginning, number one on the UK sales charts, million-selling album by the end of the year. Followed it up in the early part of 2010 with an album called The Sea, inspired in part by the the tragic death of her husband. Absolutely a morose, melancholy gem. Got a lot of great reviews. Uh, nominated for a Mercury Prize. And now she's come back with the Love EP. Based on a lot of her uh, touring in the last year, she's headlined in a num- number of shows. She played at the Coachella Music Festival. One of the key tracks on that album that we're going to play for you next is from one of those live performances. And it basically is a tribute to some of the artists that inspired her as she was growing up. She's got covers on this album of Prince, Belly, Marley, Paul McCartney and the track we're going to play for you next, "K Sera Sera. Associated with uh, Doris Day most famously, but I think she leans more heavily towards the Sly Stone version of this song. So here it is, "K Sera Sera from Corinne Bailey Ray's latest recording, The Love EP, on Sound Opinions. Oh, I, a
1: child, oh my own.
6: to see uh-huh. hey you kiss her up
4: Is Corinne Bailey Ray performing K-Sara-Sara live in Washington, D.C. from her new disc The Love EP. Five songs about love in one way or another. Five songs by artists that she admires one and all. Less Doris Day in that case, Greg, than I think uh, Sly and the Family Stone. I really don't like this record and I really don't like Corinne Bailey Ray. I empathize with her loss. I heard it very poignantly on the sea. But there is a preciousness a lack of grit, a lack of just guts and soul to this neo-soul artist that, to me, she's like the UK version of Nora Jones, had nothing to do with Adele or Amy Whitehouse. Those are real people. Those are gritty, soulful people. This is, is a is a chirpy little bird, and I don't mean any disrespect, but she's clearly talented. It just doesn't have the soul I want in my soul music, and nobody under any circumstances should ever cover my love by Paul McCartney.
1: And when I go away and know my heart can stay in my in the hands of my love my love doesn't
4: good. that's one that, that should just be better off forgotten forever on the buy it burn it trash it scale this is a trash
3: it EP Greg well, you're being a little bit harsh as far as I'm concerned. I would agree with you to the extent that I've always found a rather pleasant kind of nice wallpapery kind of music. I, you know, the, even though that last album was based on a tragedy I never felt the real emotion that I expected to hear from somebody who had just lost a loved one like she did. Maybe that's just her style. Maybe she doesn't have it in her. But on this record, I did hear something new, something that I had not heard before, a little bit of friskiness in her voice, a little bit of that grit that you found lacking. The covers of Marley and McCartney, very pleasant and predictable. Nothing new there. But the real story, I think, here is when she covers Prince, when she covers Belly. And I thought the Kayser Asura cover was great. I go, wow, that's Corinne Bailey Ray. I want to hear more <laughs> of that. I want to hear more of that on the next record. I'm going to say burn it, and I'm going to say, in particular, focus on that Kayser Asura track. It's an extended track, and I think it's the best thing she's ever done. I Trash It for Me and a Burn It from You for Corinne Bailey Ray. What do we have on the show next week, Greg? Next week, Jim, we have one of the great champions of indie rock, both as label owners and as a great band in their own right, Superchunk, in the studio for a live performance and an interview.
4: Greg, as always, Sound Opinions is produced by Jason Saldana and Robin Lynn, our very own two electric wizards. And our executive producer, our fearless leader, Tori southside Malatia. he's more of the Sorcerer's Apprentice. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. New
0: messages.
2: Hi, Jim and Greg. Happy New Year from Los Angeles. My name is Alan, and I just wanted to piggyback on what that other woman uh, this past week said in her phone call about vinyl. I have actually gone an extra mile. If an artist puts out a new release, and it's on vinyl, and it comes with a digital download, pretty much how it's happening now, I will gladly pay $15.99 upwards of $20 or more as I did for Steel Train, Against Me, etc., etc. If, however, the major artist can't see fit to include a digital download with a vinyl or even a vinyl release, I will happily wait for Amazon to discount the record to $3.99 before I buy it. I have found that I am able to support great newer artists I get to sit on my couch with a big gatefold piece of cardboard and read along, and the sound is great, and then I carry it around on my iPod. So hooray for bringing back vinyl, and hooray for the bundling of digital downloads. Hey, Sad Opinions, what's up? This is uh, James down in Montgomery, Alabama. Just got through listening to the Buried Treasures podcast, and I liked it a lot. I, liked, I wish you guys did that more often, because... I feel like I I liked almost all the music you talked about, and I wanted to share mine with you. This year I saw a band called Circle Pit from Australia, and they blew me away. Check them out Thanks a lot Uh, Hi, my name is Brian I'm calling from Fort Worth I just got done listening to your Best Albums of 2010 podcast And uh, I have to say That I found my favorite album from 2010 From listening to your episode Where you took a quote-unquote Road trip around the United States And you interviewed the journalists from Baltimore, and he mentioned bands like J. Roddy Walston and The Business. And uh,
3: J. Roddy Walston put out a self-titled album that I just haven't been able to
2: put down since I got it. Time.
6: I don't love you. It's just a
2: They're sort of part of this
3: unspoken, dirty rock and roll movement that seems to be coming back right now. J. Roddy Walston has As much more security here, and more powerful, and more heartfelt, and more
2: gutsy sound than that, and I just I can't get enough of it. Thanks for a good 2010. Hi, this is Kim from Chicago, and I just wanted to thank you for your great album dissection of Stevie Wonder's songs in the Key of Life. I grew up in my dad's shag carpeted den in the 70s, listening to
0: the records, staring into the cover design, reading the liner notes, over and over until he basically became like a family friend in my head. Um, There was something about the music's mix of
3: of funk and romance, and somewhere along the line, I even hatched this this secret fantasy that, that he would play at my wedding. So fast forward 30 years and the fantasy may have faded,
0: but then my boyfriend and I get engaged, a Amir, three days after you re-aired
2: your dissection. You think that's a coincidence? I don't think so. <laughs> so thanks for reminding me of a childhood dream. Stevie will definitely be
0: playing at my wedding on shuffle, and I will be dancing like I did on that shag carpet.